Welcome to the Thrive Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two Christian women who aim to be grounded in the Word and understand how it applies to our lives. We're passionate about making Christian theology accessible for every woman and equipping others to seek an intimate relationship with Christ. Stay tuned as we dive into today's topic. everybody. Welcome to another quarantine episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast. Emily and I are coming to you today with a hot topic that we're pretty excited about. So today we are going to talk to you about angels and demons. Now there's a lot we don't know about angels and demons, and there are a lot of different views out there, both in just popular culture and conceivably biblical views. So we're going to tell you some things that we know for sure based on what the Bible says. As always, subscribe to our podcast on whatever listening thing you're listening to. And if you want more information to contact us or you want our social media, you can go to our website at thrivetheology.com. All right. So first up, we're going to just share some quick facts with you about angels in the Bible. The word angel appears 213 times in the Old Testament. And the word there that we see angel is, of course, in Hebrew. And we also see the word, um, the Greek word for angel, 176 times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word for angel is often translated to messenger or ambassador. And the Bible describes 26 specific encounters with angels. We have angels in church history. The early church fathers recognized angels as playing an important part in the life of the church, as well as individual followers of Jesus in creation. Martin Luther thought that angels were a good example to follow in their submission and obedience to God. And John Calvin was cautious about angels, recognizing the danger of unhelpful imaginations about angels and turning such speculations into angel worship. So in scripture, we see angels tell people to whom they appear not to bow down to them. Then before the Reformation, there had been a popular idea in the Catholic Church that angels intercede between God and man. After the Reformation, the revived idea of justification by faith alone opposed this popular belief. A lot of people after the Reformation were like, no, because we're justified by faith alone, we don't need angels to intercede between us and God. Fast forward a little bit further and you have the Puritans. So the Puritans wanted to avoid anything that sounded magical. They were very, very cautious about anything sounding mystical or Um, or magical. So they didn't talk too much at all about angels. They rather focused on talking about God. They kind of figured like, hey, what angels do doesn't really affect us that much. Let's talk about God. And so they centered their discussion on talking about the heavenly host as a whole, rather than angels and the role that they play in our individual lives. Now we're going to go over what we do know about angels. First of all, we know that they are created beings, which means they're not like the Trinity. Um, We read in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, that says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And then we have in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 through 9, this tells us that they are not God. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, 
You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And finally, we have 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, which tells us that they are subject to God's law. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So if you do wrong, like angels can do wrong, I suppose, but they have to worship or they have to obey God's law. Yeah, and something that I'm curious about, and I haven't really researched enough to get a lot of clarity, so maybe there is clarity on it, and I just don't know about the clarity, is that I'm not sure if angels can still fall away from God, or if that was kind of like a one-time event in eternity past, you know, where did Satan just like rise up with this rebellion, and then all the angels kind of had a choice to make, and then their choice was like, that was the end of it. Do you know what I mean? Or, Or is it like they can still fall away today? I don't know. I don't think the Bible's super clear I would, about yeah. that. I would say that in my understanding, they made the choice once and for all. And while humans, we change our minds all the time. We're really fickle. I feel like an, an angel who is who didn't decide way back when to follow Satan, if they, I don't, if they chose to decide that now and they're not able to, then it would be like an unwilling servant of God, which I feel is just wrong. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Like they're like, I have to serve God, even though I'm hating it with every breath. Like that doesn't sound right. So in my humble opinion, I would say that it was a once for all thing. Yeah, I think I agree with that. This is a little off topic, but I think that as humans, there's a difference in like our salvation. Like we sinned. And so Jesus came and died for us. Like Jesus didn't die for the angels. Right. So I I feel like that's just a whole different narrative of, you know, these, these angels maybe had a one-time choice to make and maybe they don't get a second chance. Like their choice was their choice for eternity. If they left, if they left God and, and went with Satan, that's like the one choice that they got to make. Um, at least, and and there's probably, I'm sure there's more to it than that. We're just not going to ever know that on the side of heaven, right? But I think I agree with you there. I think it's it seems like it was a one-time choice in eternity past. And yeah, you don't ever see an instance in the Bible of angels like defecting um, since that initial rebellion of Satan. So, all right. So that being said, um, let's hop back on track here. So one of the primary jobs of an angel seems to be worshiping God. So Bethany just read Nehemiah chapter nine, verse six. And uh, we saw in that passage um, that says the host of heaven worships you. And then we also see in Revelation chapter seven, verses 11 to 12, uh, John, who wrote Revelation, sees angels worshiping in the throne room of heaven. So that passage says this, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We also know that there are a bunch of angels. Um, First of all, we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, that Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 
So this is a military term, legion. And in the Roman army, a legion was about 5,000 Roman soldiers. So if Jesus can command 12 legions, that's 60,000 angels. And so first of all, we know that's kind of the minimum amount, even though I, I think this is more of a rhetorical question from Jesus because he's trying to comfort his disciples in this period of intense sorrow and confusion. But we have to assume by that that it means that he could if he wanted to. Um, secondly, we've got Luke chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those of whom his favor rests. So by this, we know that there's a multitude or a whole company of angels. Again, we don't have a specific like number of how many angels there are, but it gives us an idea that there's a lot. And then finally, we've got Psalm chapter 68, verse 17, which says, The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. By this, we know that the army of the Lord is very, very large. I don't think we need a specific number of all the angels. It's enough to know that there's enough of them. <laughs> there's a lot and there's enough for what God's purposes are. Something else we know about angels is that there are different kinds. We see three different kinds of angels mentioned in scripture. We see seraphim, cherubim, and living creatures. These are all probably pretty familiar to you, but we'll go over them regardless, um, just in case you don't know much about these types. So the seraphim, we actually don't know much about seraphim at all. They are only mentioned one time in the Bible. And that is in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. So Isaiah here is describing a vision he, um, he had. So the passage says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Next up, we have cherubim. We actually see cherubim mentioned several times throughout scripture. The first time we see them is very early on in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, and uh, that passage says this. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in this case, the cherubim are described as being on guard and guarding this entrance. In the book of Exodus, when the Israelites are putting together the Ark of the Covenant and the temple and or rather the tabernacle and all of those different pieces of furniture and everything. God commands the Israelites to place likenesses of cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. So Exodus chapter 25, verse 22 says this, There I will meet you, this is the Lord speaking, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The third passage we have here, this is not all the passages cherubim are mentioned, by the way. These are just some examples. Um, but we see in the book of Ezekiel, cherubim are mentioned again. So Ezekiel has a vision from the Lord, and he describes the cherubim in it. So Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 20 to 22 say this. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal. 
and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings and under their wings, the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. So this is kind of a unique description. I can't really picture it in my own head. Um, I have a hard time picturing this description. And I think that this just attests to something that we may we may touch on later. Um, but we have a hard time describing angels sometimes because they are just so not of this world. So the third type of angel we see throughout scripture is what is described pretty generally as living creatures. So throughout different places in scripture, we see living creatures being referred to. And typically in this context, they are mentioned as looking like different creatures on the earth. Throughout the book of Revelation, you'll see these living creatures being described as like having the face of a lion or, or the wings of an eagle or, or whatever. So we just see these scattered throughout scripture and there's lots of instances of living creatures being mentioned. Next, we know that they serve believers and God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, we know that they ministered to Jesus after he was tempted. Daniel chapter 6, verses 22, um, you know the story of the angel protecting Daniel from the lions in the lion's den from eating him. In Acts chapter 5, verse 19, an angel opened the prison doors to let the apostles out of jail. In Acts chapter 12, verse 23, angels can exact God's judgment, so Herod is killed. And we're actually going to read that passage because it's more a more obscure story. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So I I get some odd joy from this story just because Herod was a bad guy. And then finally, we've got Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 42, and we're going to read that one as well. It says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we, those are the things that we know um, that they serve believers in God. And those are some examples. Next, we know that there is a hierarchy of angels. Um, there are multiple times in scripture where we see Michael referred to as the archangel. One place is in the book of Jude verse nine, which says, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So this passage is referring to the angel Gabriel explaining why he was delayed in coming. So we see in both of these passages that there is clearly um, a hierarchy in, in the angel, in the angelic realms, because the, um, Michael is, is placed over the rest of the angels. The other reason we can kind of 
think about this in a hierarchy is because we see the angelic host being referred to in military terms multiple times throughout scriptures. Um, For whatever reason, the authors of the Bible, divinely inspired, have chosen to explain angels and the way that they work in the earthly military terms, something that people of really any culture are going to understand in some respect. So in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 8, we see this as well. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So there, of course, the dragon refers to Satan, and the angels refers to fallen angels um, that are now fighting against the Lord. So because we see these depicted in a military way, we can really only assume that they are organized in a similar fashion. Although this is not something granted that we know um, with 100% certainty. And finally, we know that angels are not divine. They are not deity. They are subject to Christ's authority in the same way that earthly powers are. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, Um, We read this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We also know that angels are not all-knowing or omniscient. They Um, For example, do not know when Jesus' second coming will be. And Jesus tells his disciples this in Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. All right, on to the next section, what we don't know about angels. So first of all, we don't really know what they look like in a super precise way. It seems as though angels can actually change their appearance before mankind if they need to. So it's hard to say what they look like with certainty. In the scripture, sometimes angels look just like men, and it's kind of indistinguishable. So an example is those who visit Sodom and Gomorrah, um, he who visits Samson's mother, Gabriel who is visiting Mary, and sometimes they look very frightening and for multiple reasons. So we have... Of course, there's different angels with different jobs, and it seems like they look different as well. Um, We're going to link a series from the Bible Project called the Spiritual Being Series. It's like, I think, seven, six or seven different videos, Um, and those are going to be a really good help for you if you want some sort of visual representation, um, because they don't look like humans um, for the most part. I think their natural form isn't particularly human-like from the different examples that we have in scripture. So lots of different ways, I suppose, is the answer to how they actually look. So just to add on to what Bethany's saying there, um, we have different descriptions throughout scripture. Like we read some of them earlier. Um, For example, the seraphim, we know have six wings, the cherubim, four faces, and different things like that. So there are these different descriptions throughout scripture, but we believe these descriptions are limited to human knowledge. So in the Bible, when we have different people seeing an angels and encountering them, they say things like, um, like Ezekiel said, they had like the likeness of human hands. 
So that doesn't mean that they exactly had the same thing as human hands, but that was the closest thing Ezekiel could compare it to in our earthly realm to give a description and try to illustrate what these angels looked like. So I think that we are really limited by our own human knowledge, our finite wisdom, and we can't perfectly describe some of the things that we see. Okay, now we're going to talk about evil. You've heard about the light side. It's time for the dark side. Okay, what do we know about the Satan or demons? Um, first of all, we know that they are fallen angels. We know this from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And that was about a third of the angels that were cast down. So this is like the once and for all decision. We don't know. Well, we think it was a once and for all, but we do know it's a third of them that have decided to oppose God. Um, So Satan is actually a word for opposer. And the the correct pronunciation is Satan. Um, And if you listen to the Bible Project and Tim Mackey, they tend to not use Satan as a proper name or a proper title because they think that this being is more of, I think, like a versatile thing, more the embodiment of evil rather than like a personal name. And so they'll call him the, the Satan or the Satan just to differentiate. So Satan's counterpart is not God. A lot of time people want to, like, they'll see the, the picture of a, of a demon arm wrestling Jesus. <laughs> and that's just not the way it is. So Satan's counterpart is not God. It's actually the Archangel Michael. Um, and we already read this in Daniel chapter 10, but we're going to read it again quick here. It says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. First of all, Michael is the one who is Satan's counterpart, not God. Michael is sent to fight Satan. Secondly, just an interesting to note here, the prince of the kingdom of Persia seems to be a territorial demon who has dominion or responsibility for the kingdom of Persia. We're going to talk about that a little later, but this is the verse that we're going to be referring to. Um, So Satan, I'm just going to call him Satan. Um, He shows up in Genesis 1, is the first that we hear of him, as a snake to deceive Eve and Adam and have them question God's goodness and tells them to eat the fruit expressly against God's will, which they do. But Satan does oppose God. So if we read Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was among them. So first of all, Satan still has access to God's throne room by God's grace. Um, But secondly, this whole story is Satan slowly taking things away from Job in order to test Job's loyalty to God and whether or not it was true. So he does this because he's seeking to destroy God's people. Satan wants to destroy anything that reflects the goodness of God and his creation or the attributes of God in creation. So things like marriages, because that reflects God's um, relationship with the church, Christ and the church, or 
um, families, because that's something that God has set up. He wants to destroy families, um, purity, love, truth, all of the good things. So we see this in the story of Job, which you can read for yourself or listen to the fantastic Bernard and Job Adventures in Odyssey episode, which both Emily and I have quoted twice now in starting to plan for this episode. Um, and you can read that story for yourself just to kind of see this is probably the clearest vision we have or the clearest look into how Satan operates, even though this is more of a one time thing. We also know that demons have the ability to take over a human body. We see this um, throughout scripture in demon possession, and we're not going to get like too much into demon possession because some people think that anything wrong with any human is a result of demon possession, which is just not biblical. Um, so we want to be careful that we're not propagating that idea. But demon possession is possible in some cases. Um, however, if that freaks you out a bit, I just want to offer a word of encouragement in that uh, Christians cannot be possessed by demons because they are already filled with the spirit of God. In Mark chapter five, we hear the story about the demoniac um, who was living in the tombs and wandering around um, a desolate place. And when Jesus asks him what his name is, the demon responds um, that his name is Legion for we are many. If we're talking about the Roman soldier legions of soldiers that were common in that day um, that would be like 5,000 um, so you can take that with what you will but legion is many so this man was filled with many many demons at the time that being said Jesus has authority over demons and he gives that authority to Christians so no demon was ever able to uh, disobey Jesus when he said um, to come out of the people that they were possessing. And in his grace, Jesus has given us that same authority through his spirit. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the end, demons will be consigned to the second death, which is the lake of burning fire and sulfur. Um, Ouch. Yeah. Painful man. So we see that there are some demons that are there in this lake already. And over the time that Jesus, Jesus was on earth, he would send demons um, to the second death. And at the end, that's where they're all going, whether they make it there, make it to the very end before they're sent there or they get sent there before the end happens. So we also see this in the Mark 5 passage. I think it is when is this not the person who Jesus sends the demons into a herd of pigs? And there's 2,000 of them? Yes, you are correct. Yes, and, they, and Jesus does this because the demons beg him to not send them into the abyss, which I believe is what you're talking about there. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the next thing is that demons know the Bible and they will use it out of context to thwart God's plan. So oftentimes they will quote a verse, but it's not being used in the way it intends, intended to. We see this when Jesus is tempted by Satan and Satan will come up with a passage and Jesus will be like, ha ha ha, no, you don't. And then quote something, quote a different passage. So you can read that as well. 
So demons can masquerade as good beings or beings of light. Um, Satan is known as an angel of light, which is different than what we would usually think about them as being like dark and red. But so they can masquerade as that. So, um, but they tend to masquerade as beings of light. They also cannot see the future or read minds. Now this can be hard because you wonder, but how do they know? How does the temptation come at the perfect time? At this point, demons have seen the entirety of human history, those of them that are still on the earth and not in the lake of fire. And if you had watched the entirety of human history, you would have a pretty good idea about human nature. You, you would be well-versed in how humans react in various situations. And so they can probably predict the future pretty well. So false teachers or people who are being led by demons or demons that are trying to like lead giant groups of people, I don't know, whatever they're doing. Um, they can like make predictions or like say things that might make you think that they know the future or can read your mind, but they're just really, really good at knowing what humans are going to do because they've seen us for a very long time. So I don't, there's no evidence to say that they can read your mind, um, but they probably know what you're going to do. All right. So let's talk about what we do not know about the Satan and demons. So one thing we do not know is their physical limitations. Um, one thing we kind of know in this respect is that people who are possessed often display superhuman strength, but we don't know what their actual physical limitations are. We also don't know if they can inha- inhabit inanimate objects. The Bible doesn't say anything about this issue. There is no biblical support for demon possession of ordinary objects. And there's also nothing in the Bible that says that this is not possible. That being said, you've probably heard stories about um, like haunted houses and that kind of thing where objects like get moved around. From what I've gathered when those situations happen is that that would be demonic activity that is like moving those objects as a human would, like throwing items across a room rather than those objects actually being possessed themselves. I'm not sure. I would say that just because the Bible, like there's no biblical support either way for this. So just because the Bible doesn't explicitly say that they can like move objects or be connected to objects, I don't think that means that they can't be just that we don't know for sure. Right, exactly. We also don't, for the most part, know their names. Um, We can speculate but we don't know specific names. As Bethany already mentioned, the um, chief um, opposer of God is called the Satan throughout scripture. And there um, is the odd time where Jesus asks a demon what its name is. Like in the Mark 5 passage, he says, what is your name? And the demon replies, legion, for we are many. Um, So there's different things like that. You also see scripture where the Pharisees are saying, you know, by the power of Beelzebub, he is driving out demons. So in that case, the Jewish people at that point called the prince of demons or the Satan Beelzebub. So we see different instances like that. um, But I don't know, we don't know what their actual names are. We also don't know on that note, um, their appearance. So there's lots of different speculation and Um, speculations out there. As we said, they can masquerade of angels as angels of light, but we don't know what their actual appearance is. It seems like they can change their appearances, but other than that, we're not really sure what their actual appearance is. 
So we don't know if there are different kinds of demons. One would think that yes, because we know that because they're fallen angels and there are different kinds of angels, but we just don't know for sure. We don't really know if there's a hierarchy specifically. In the Middle Ages, the seven deadly sins were said to have a specific demon behind them, which is interesting, um, especially since there's been instances of enduring an exorcism where people have spoken to a demon and the demon has given a name like lust or fear or whatever. Um, and then there might be like, I don't know, maybe like adultery is a huge demon that's really strong. And like a smaller demon might just be like jealousy. I don't know. So from the earlier story from Mark 5 with the demoniac, we know that legion is a military term. It can lead us to think that they are organized in a military sense, just like the angels. So having a hierarchy. We talked a bit about before about geographical um, issues, like like having a demon be over a city or over a house or following a person. There are lots of different ways that that could be. So we have some final thoughts after all of that information. It might be a little bit overwhelming to think about. And I know when I was younger, for sure, before I really understood much about the angelic realm, like talk about demons, like really freaked me out. So I just want to encourage you with the passage from Ephesians chapter six, verses 12 to 13, which says this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Something else I just want to share. I remember this one time I was, I think probably about 20 or 21 years old. And I was laying in bed just thinking about this. And I just got to the point where I was paralyzed by fear. Like I remember I physically couldn't move. And in that moment, like that's a spiritual attack. And something that my mom told me when I was little is that um, one way that I could oppose spiritual attack was by commanding Satan to get behind me in the name of the blood of the lamb. And that was just something that I still, I still use to this day. Because when we are washed in the blood of Christ, that means that we have his power living within us. And something that Satan cannot stand to hear is the blood of the lamb, because that act on the cross is what ultimately has defeated him forever. And his ultimate defeat is, is inevitable. It's coming. So Satan knows that he fears the name of God. He fears the name of Christ Jesus and he fears Christ Jesus living in us. So let that be an encouragement to you. If discussion about demonic power freaks you out. So I have some, I have like the almost exact same thing with Emily where it's like, um, in the name of Jesus, by the blood of the lamb, I command you to leave me. I'm a child of the King. You have no place here. Like I, I remember saying that I don't even remember when my mom told me, like, I just have always said that if I woke up in the middle of the night with a like nightmare, I actually have had an experience. I was in my dorm room at school and I was going to sleep and I just felt really terrified. And I was, I was sleeping 
where I was like laying facing the wall and I just had this enormous sense of dread and I felt like there was a giant demon standing in the middle of my dorm room and I just remember being like paralyzed with fear and I was on the bottom of the of a bunk bed so I asked my roommate Jessica to pray for me and so she did it was short but powerful and I just had like peace started washing over me and I had this mental image of Jesus coming in and sitting down on the side of my bed and just like putting his hand on my shoulder and I fell asleep. In the morning when I woke up, I talked to Jessica about it and she was like, I was so scared. Like I felt like there was something too. I couldn't even look like I was so freaked out. But like when we prayed, like it went away. And so that's, I guess, a personal experience that I've had. Um, I think at that time I had actually been like reading or thinking or even talking about this whole thing. So I know that it can bring that up. I think just a, a reminder is just Jesus, he, he will fight for you. Like as, as a child of God, as a, as a Christian, you need, you need only ask and he will, he will fight for you. So that's just a little personal antidote. Um, Secondly, Emily and I were talking as we were prepping for this episode. We were wondering like, man, we don't really hear about angels very much in the Western world. Or we don't hear lots of actual stories about angels. And I think I remember doing some research on this when I was like 12. And the book that was all about angels was having had, had stories in it about if an angel showed up, It was because a person needed God's comfort and that angels being there was a method of bringing peace to that person and pointing the glory back to God. As much as we might want angels to be a more active, um, visible force in our world, because they look so different and they can be beautiful and scary, they could so easily take the focus off of God. And as like God's workers, that's the last thing that they would want. And so in this world where we would have a tendency to worship them instead of God, I think that's why we don't see as much of them. And then the stories we do have that are more credible, the their visit just turns more and more attention back onto God. So that's a little personal anecdote. So my verse to leave you with is Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented every day and night forever and ever. Essentially, Jesus wins. That's what you need to know. Jesus wins. All right. That's all we got for you today. So we're going to just give you a few recommended resources and uh, and then we'll be done for today. So our first recommended resource is Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. This is something we talked about a few weeks ago when we just did our um, By Faith C.S. Lewis episode. And uh, this one was just kind of an interesting perspective on how demons will try to interfere with the life of a believer. Now, of course, this is all based on C.S. Lewis's opinion of how spiritual warfare works, but it's a good it's a good read. A quote from this book is uh, is this. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones and without signposts. 
So that's a quote that the older demon in this book is writing to the younger demon whom he is teaching how to tempt away the, uh, the Christian. Next is a two-book series um, by Frank Peretti. The first book is This Present Darkness, and the second is Piercing the Darkness. These are written in modern-day America, or like in the 90s, whenever the books were written. These books are really interesting. They bounce back and forth between the, the visible world and the invisible world. And these books have characters that are involved in the occult, so it kind of has this perspective of how people who are in the occult and in the new age movement um, get involved with demonic activity. But it also shows how the angels who are protecting the Christians are, are going to war against the demons and, uh, and freeing people spiritually. And finally, as Bethany mentioned earlier in the episode, we will also link the Bible Project's Spiritual Beings series. So that'll be another great resource that you can check out if you're interested in learning more. So that all being said, that's the end of our episode for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, um, feel free to reach us. You can head over to our website, thrivetheology.com, where you can get in contact with us. You can also see previous episodes that we've done. You can find the link to join our Facebook discussion group, and you can also find all of our blog posts and show notes um, that we've done in the past. So we will chat with you next week. Bye. Bye.